Welcome to The Winsome Creationist, where we explore God's world using a model-building approach, interact with a gracious tone, and take a firm stand on the literal truth of creation found in God's Word. Join host Steve Schramm and occasional guests as they explore the mysteries and majesties from creation to the flood, Babel to the cross, and everywhere in between. And now, here's your host. Hello there, friends. Welcome into another episode of The Winsome Creationist. In this one, I'm going to play an interview for you by a acquaintance of mine and someone who I've gotten to know a little bit over the years named Paul Garner. He is a fantastic uh, creation scientist and popularizer. You might know him from his podcast with Dr. Todd Wood called Let's Talk Creation. What we did in this one was take a look at some of the arguments and updates and advancements that have come out since he wrote his book called The New Creationism in 2009. Now, this audio and video was recorded last year, um, and it's just now making it to light, but I'm really excited about it, and I think um, it's going to be very, very helpful for you as well, and I know you're going to enjoy it, and looking forward to a lot more interviews like this one coming up in the future. I am super excited today for an interview that I've waited a very long time to get done, and it's just a pleasure and honor to be here with my brother in the Lord, Paul Garner. And Paul is the co-host of the Let's Talk Creation podcast with Todd Wood, so you may be familiar with him or have seen him floating around before. We're going to introduce you to him today. How are you doing, Paul? I'm doing very well, thanks, Steve. Yeah, awesome. It's very great good. to be here today uh, with you, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. I'm, like I said, I'm very excited about this. For those of you who don't know, Paul is a, a full-time researcher for the Biblical Creation Trust there in the UK. So we are, we're talking across the pond in this interview. And I just, I'm in technology. I've been in the technology field for a long time. And just, I just think science and technology is so cool that we can have these sorts of conversations that really wouldn't have been possible even just a few short years ago. It's just, we were commenting on how easy this, the software that we're using makes it even to do this. And that's, that's all a result of the way that God made this world in a way that could be explored, could be studied, could be in a ethical way, manipulated to be able to do things that are so cool and important like this. I, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate that. Paul has got basically a master's of science degree in geoscience from University College London. And that's where he specialized in paleobiology. So this is going to be really exciting. He's a fellow of the Geological Society of London and a member of a lot of other scientific societies as well. Paul, why don't you just tell us a little bit more about you, about what you do, about your ministry work, the focus of your research, whatever you'd like to share. First of all, thank you very much for having me on today. We've been talking about doing this for a long time, so it's great to finally be here. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's great, great to do this. Yeah. So as you've said, I work for a small creationist organization in the UK called Biblical Creation Trust. I have a couple of colleagues, Dr. Stephen Lloyd and Matthew Pitgaver, and I think you've had a conversation in the past with, with Stephen Lloyd. And I basically spend my time speaking and doing research and writing on the subject of origins from a creationist perspective. I had a first degree in combined science that was geology and biology, and I majored in geology. And then I went on, as you say, to do a postgraduate program at University College London in paleobiology. And I guess some people will probably wonder what paleobiology is. Paleobiology is essentially the where we seek to reconstruct the history of life from the patterns that we can discern in the fossil record. 
So mm. it's a kind of an interdisciplinary field where we're taking aspects of biology and geology and seeking to understand the large scale processes and patterns in the history of life. And my research thesis was actually on dinosaur diversification rates. I guess a lot of people will know me because of the book that we're, we're going to talk about today, The New Creationism. Some people will perhaps have come across the podcast that I co-host with Dr. Todd Wood, Let's Talk Creation. We just launched that back in March and we've been really delighted to see how the audience has continued to grow and we're really enjoying doing that. I've got a new book coming out. I know we're here to talk about the new creationism, but I've got a new one that is about to come out called Fossils and the Flood. And it's a different kind of book to the new creationism. It's going to be a large format, full color, coffee table type Ah. And it's illustrated with over 200 fantastic watercolor illustrations by a very talented artist friend of mine, Jean Elizabeth, including some fantastic sort of dioramas reconstructing pre-flood and post-flood environments. And it looks absolutely fabulous. The graphic designer, Ben Kelly, has done a superb job on the page layouts. And I just can't wait to share it with everybody. So I'm really excited. Oh man, that is absolutely fantastic. I didn't even know about that. I'm getting so excited. Yeah, that that is because actually I recently had a question that I was hoping to have somebody on the podcast to talk about human fossils in the flood and why we don't find as many. So maybe if we have time, we could hit that question a little bit. I'm glad you mentioned the book. I'm glad you mentioned both. And we'll certainly be looking forward to that. Do we have a date for the book that's coming out yet or not quite yet? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure, but it won't be uh, it won't be many weeks. I think we're basically at Wonderful. the point where we're almost about to send it to press. Oh, fantastic! Okay, good. We'll be sure to let everybody know when that happens. Absolutely. I really am glad though that you mentioned the new creationism because honestly, I think that this book is probably one of the most important, especially modern books that you could really read on the subject of of creationism. And really, not necessarily your book, because I actually read it a little bit after I had started getting into this, but I had started following your work and Kurt Wise's work and Todd Wood's work. Actually, a lot of it thanks to the Is Genesis History documentary and, and the guys that put all of those things together. Personally, those really introduced me to, to another side of the sort of creation science movement, not necessarily in a, meaning like that the sides are warring. That's not what I mean, but I just mean that there are two main approaches to creation science. Approach number one is a little bit more defensive in the sense of we, we want to look at why maybe evolution isn't true, why long ages isn't true. That's the more apologetics defensive angle. But then there's also more of an offensive angle that I would say really it's start in the early 90s. I think I would be right about that. And then it's just progressed on from there where it's more of this model building approach where we're actually trying to look at the natural world with the, with the assumption, okay, God created the Genesis 1 through 11. These biblical accounts are true. Now what? <laughs> right now, what does that mean for science? And so in many ways, your book, The New Creationism, which I believe was 2009. You'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it, was, it came out in 2009. And it really laid out in, in essentially the current state of creation science at that time. And, and when I say the current state of creation science, it was the current state of all these different models from these different fields. Like what is the best explanation of this thing or that thing, be it cosmology or 
biology or these different fields. So what I thought was just really would be a cool thing for this interview is now here we are, what, 10, 11, I'm bad at basic math, right? 10, 11 years later, basically 12, I guess, years later. And we are thinking, okay, where has, where has the science gone? What new questions have come up? What, what, do we have answers to any of the things we were talking about before? What new challenges are we facing, et cetera? So I thought it would just be super cool to have a little bit of an update from each of these different fields and consider just the different sections of the book and get the new current state of creationism from you on these things. That's the plan for today. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, I really wrote the book back in 2009 because it, although I've, I've made some sort of modest contributions to creationist research, I'm really a popularizer. That's really how I see myself. Sure. And I was very interested to take all of the, this model building work that is going on that, that creationist researchers who are working at the coalface have been doing, but which wasn't really very well known, even among people who are familiar with the creationist literature. And so I wanted in the book to take that work and communicate it in a way that the ordinary person could understand. And so I wanted to look at models in cosmology and geology and biology and anthropology and try to sort of communicate those to someone who wasn't a scientist, but wanted to understand what are we replacing the evolutionary theories with? So that's really the focus of the book. So it's giving that sure. kind of positive sure. case for, for creationism rather than here are all the reasons why evolution isn't true. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate that approach. And I, at a really, at a really practical, like super practical level, I always look to tag you in posts and get you in the conversation on Facebook because uh, one reason why I really, I, I'm just waiting, what's Paul's response going to be? What's Paul's response going to be? Because you knew creationists have antagonists. Yeah. And uh, there are, we have a lot of, maybe not enemies, but we do have a lot of enemies, but we have a lot of people who just play with us. And unfortunately, and I hate to say this, but unfortunately, a lot of people who consider themselves opponents to creationism are not as well read on the subject as they would like people to think. And I don't necessarily blame them for not wanting to get into all the intricacies of creation science and such. But the fact that there are all of these models that are being built to explain the things that are happening in the physical world gives you, in a sense, more ammunition to say, no, actually, no, this is how creationists can understand this particular challenge. Maybe they've only ever heard a evolutionary perspective on a challenge. And it's no, we actually have a good answer for how this could happen in a creationary type of scenario. And I think that's important. And I think that's why this model building work, the work of scientists who are doing the research now to produce models for various physical phenomena, things, I think that's why it's important so that we do have a reasonable answer and a reasonable alternative to the evolutionary scenario. Yeah, we, so, we, we, we so. really only get so far, don't we, by poking holes in the other person's ideas. That's and right. uh, right. we, we need as creationists, I think, to move beyond that. And to, I think what's a very powerful apologetic, actually, apart from anything else, is to show that we can explain the data as well, or in some cases better, than the standard evolutionary yeah. theories. And I think that's what we need to be doing. We need to be investing more, more into the construction of our own theories, testing, and then refining them and showing that if we base our thinking on the insights given to us in the Bible, that we can build scientific theories that actually explain the data really well. Absolutely. Absolutely. With that, I guess we'll stop teasing and we'll just get right to it. 
and start talking about some of the the different models and things across these different areas. The first one that you cover in the book, and again, we're just going by the main sections of the book, and then you can talk about whatever you feel like in there. But the first major section of the book is the heavens and the earth. So I'm interested to hear what's the latest. Are there any new models being developed? Did we toss some old models out in the last 10 or 11 years? And what's happened as it relates to the heavens and the earth? Yeah, cosmology and astronomy, which is really the theme of that, that, that sort of first section of the book, is really the discipline that I'm least familiar with because it's quite way outside of my own field. It's also, interestingly, one of the least well-developed parts of the creation model. Most of the creationist work in this area has tended to focus on the light travel time problem. So basically, people may be familiar with this problem of if the universe is young, if there was a recent creation, then how does light reach the Earth from distant parts of the universe? in only a short time frame. And I think most of the creationist work that's been done in cosmology has really focused on trying to address that problem. Some of the most promising models that have tried to address this issue have been models which are based on Einstein's of general relativity. And in Einstein's equations, effectively, the speed of light is a constant, but gravity is, sorry, gravity has a distorting effect on time. Time is not a constant in Einstein's model. So we, we have this effect called time dilation, where time actually passes, if you like, at different rates, depending on where it is in a gravitational field. And this time dilation effect has been known about for a long time. It's, scientists have been aware of it for about a century. And it's well supported experimentally. So back in 1994, Russell Humphreys proposed a new creationist cosmology that essentially used this time dilation effect to explain the starlight problem. So he proposed that the Earth had been created at or near the center of a bounded universe. A bounded universe is one that has a center and an edge which is unlike the universe that is lived in standard Big Bang cosmology. And he, he said that if we think that God expanded the universe from a very dense state called a white hole, then there would be these time dilation effects so that clocks, if you like, near the center of the universe would run at a different rate than clocks further out in the universe. Clocks further out would run much faster and this would allow light from distant galaxies time to reach the Earth in a short time frame. So only a few days might pass on the Earth. The equivalent of billions of years could pass elsewhere in the universe. And he proposed that model in 94. That was essentially the model that I presented in the book. Now, actually, since that time, quite a lot has happened in creationist cosmology. Russ Humphreys himself has significantly modified his own model. So I think he no longer thinks that the universe expanded from a white hole, but he's introduced instead a new concept, a kind of timeless zone that allows light to, to reach the earth from other parts of the universe. So he's modified his own thinking somewhat. Other creationists have meanwhile been proposing other kinds of cosmologies, some of them based on similar sort of time dilation concepts, but proposing different versions of the time dilation cosmology. Some aspects of Humphrey's model 
have been questioned by various creationists and other creationists have proposed completely different solutions to the light travel time problem. So Jason Lyle, for example, has proposed a completely different solution based on the idea that the standard assumption that the speed of light is the same in all directions might not be correct. Danny Faulkner has proposed a kind of mature creation model in which God miraculously matured the universe during the creation week. So there are all of these different ideas now floating around. And I think we're kind of at the point really where there are lots of competing ideas and not much consensus at, at, at this point. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is that as Danny Faulkner has pointed out, there actually aren't all that many biblical specifics. So we don't ah. have a lot of biblical constraints on our thinking. This uh, means that many of our models can be quite speculative. And of course, there are still lots of unanswered questions about the scientific data. So not only among creationists, but also out in the mainstream scientific community, people debate the exact nature of the cosmic microwave background or the existence of dark matter and dark energy or what's happening with the expansion of the universe and all, how do we interpret redshifts, all of these complex scientific questions. And so I think it's probably of all the areas in the book, it's the one where we still have a huge number of unanswered questions and the creation model is quite underdeveloped. And of course, we haven't even talked about all kinds of other aspects of cosmology and astronomy things like the life cycles of stars sort of processed in the universe. We see evidence of galaxies that appear to be colliding or interacting in other words. We've got the history of solar system objects, the cratering record and the history of planets like Mars and Venus. And there are so many areas and very few people really working on all of these problems. And so yeah, this is probably the area of the book where we have the most questions, I think. Yeah, that's fair. And I just, as I'm, I have so many thoughts going around in my head, one, one thing for sure is this should really motivate people to want to get into science, to want to get into as a creationist, to be in these areas of creation research. There is seriously no shortage of work that needs to be done on these things. Because as you, another thing I was thinking here, is in from the cosmology standpoint, even though we are model building, in a sense, we're still doing apologetics, right? Because so much of our model building in this area, at least, has to do with the light travel time problem. And that in itself is trying to answer a specific challenge that's often raised against the creationist viewpoint. And, um, you know, my, my personal, like, again, I, we all have our, our little interests. I have, I find myself intrigued by the creation time coordinates model that Tico Tenemir Tenev, I think is his name. He, he, along with John Baumgartner and Mark Horstemeyer, I believe, wrote about that in the last ICC. And it improves on Lyle's model. At least I think it improves upon Lyle's model, makes it a little bit more specific. I'm, at this point, I'm almost willing to say that any one of the current offerings could be the right one, I think we have enough to, I think we have enough in the creationist arsenal to at least escape the challenge of, oh, this could never happen. And so I'm almost thinking, let's take a break from this for a few years and put some research into the more, I don't want to say boring or mundane. I remember a conversation I had with Wayne Spencer about, yeah. about planets and collisions and 
cratering and all of these things and the nebular hypothesis. It's like there are so many things that, that we could stand to answer from a creationist standpoint. And maybe if we started answering some of these other little questions that would help fill in the puzzle and make the bigger cosmology and cosmogony, I guess, even come to light. Is that a fair? Do you think maybe it's time to, to get into some of those other fields instead of just trying to answer the light travel time problem? Yeah, I absolutely agree. There are all kinds of questions in, in cosmology and astronomy that have been un underdeveloped and perhaps mm. neglected because of yeah. the focus on the starlight problem. And I agree, we've got a number of possible solutions now to the starlight problem. I don't know that any of them are the final answer, but we have a number of possible avenues right. of, of approach on, on that question. But we need to be able to deal with all of these other issues as well. And you're absolutely right. We need more people to get involved. We need young people who are willing to go out and get qualified in, in these disciplines so that they can contribute to the creation model building work in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Okay. That's awesome. So let's, uh, let's maybe move on and talk about um, uh, questions of time. So that's the next section of the book. And that's where you go through and look at some of the, you start to go into some of the geological evidence and things of that nature, but really with the focus of, of time, because that is the question. Deep time is the, if I had to just boil it down, right? That's the main thing that a creationist is going to take issue with, because if it, the, with the concept of deep time, often comes the evolutionary system and all kinds of other all kinds of other issues. So the question is really one of time. Can we make a biblical case for a certain period of time? And what does the science say with respect to that? So I'll let you take it away from there. Yeah. So basically in the book, what I did was I tried to set out a basic biblical case for a young world. And obviously I began with the days of creation. And I set out a number of the arguments that I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with supporting the ordinary days interpretation of Genesis chapter one. I think there are very, very good reasons to understand those days of creation as ordinary days, similar to the ones that we now experience. And then we can build from there because we know that Adam was created obviously on the sixth day of creation. And in Genesis chapters five and 11, we have genealogies, Genesis five going from Adam to Noah, and then Genesis 11 going from Noah to Abraham, which allow us to place some constraints on the date of Adam's creation. Even if there are missing generations in the genealogy, as some people think, particularly in the Genesis 11 genealogy, I'm not so sure about that. I think they, they're probably to be understood as a straightforward no gaps chronology. But even if there are some missing generations, there's obviously a limit to how much time you can insert in them. We have genealogies that only have about 20 generations in them. And in order to accommodate conventional time spans for the origin of humanity, you'd have to put hundreds or even thousands of missing generations in. And that just stretches the genealogies beyond their breaking point, I think. So putting all of that information together, the, the, the evidence of ordinary creation days and the constraints imposed by the biblical genealogies, we can date the earth to within the last few thousand years. So if you take the Masoretic chronology, the Masoretic text, Adam was created about 6,000 years ago. If you go for the Septuagint um, text, then perhaps seven and a half thousand years ago, some, something on that order. So. That was the basic biblical case that I laid out in the book. 
And then I moved on to say, if this is correct, then the implication is that we need to rethink the history of the earth in terms of catastrophism rather than uniformitarianism, because we're obviously talking about much shorter timescales. The Bible tells us about this catastrophic event, the worldwide flood, which I guess we'll come on to later. And we need to be going back and thinking again about, about the earth's history. So I had a chapter where I looked at some evidences that would be consistent with shorter timescales in, in the discipline of geology. I had a chapter where I looked at the challenge of radiometric dating, which is probably one of the biggest challenges to the biblical concept of a young world. And I particularly focused on the work that the RATE project had done. RATE was, that, that stands for radioisotopes and the age of the earth. And it was a multi-year interdisciplinary project that involved a number of scientists, geologists, geophysicists, and so on, who were with the Institute for Creation Research and the Creation Research Society. And they on a number of projects to investigate in depth the challenges presented by radi radioactive dating methods. And I talked about the work that group did, and in particular, the conclusion that they drew that there had been one or more episodes of accelerated nuclear decay in the history of the Earth, including at the time of the flood. And of course, if nuclear decay rates were accelerated in the past, then that obviously has implications for our understanding of the results of ra radioactive dating methods. In effect, those methods are overestimating the true age of the Earth's rocks and minerals. And then at the end of that section, I had a chapter where I looked at the more positive case for a young world. And I looked at a number of young world evidences in the solar system, uh, evidences relating to the Earth itself and also to the age of mankind. So that's an overview of, of the structure of that section of the book. I guess I could tell you about some of the areas where I think the book could be updated or developments that have yeah. happened since that time. Yeah, I think that would be good. And then I also have a question, and this might be putting you on the spot a little bit, I'm not sure. But I also have a question about, I know there have been challenges presented to the work of the rate team. And just being honest, this quickly gets into a technical realm where I am not the, even the best able to express the issues. So I thought a couple things, maybe if you would get, do, as you said, maybe give, a, give us an overview, if you will, uh, of where some things could be maybe changed or updated. I'd like you to go into a little bit maybe about the isochron method, because I've heard people raise that as a challenge and maybe why the isochron method wouldn't present a challenge to us. And then if you have any thoughts about the rate team, was their research successful in proving what it purported to have challenges raised to it, discredited what they came up with. I would just love to hear your thoughts on any and all of that. Okay. There are a few areas where I probably want to add to what I said in the book. For a biblical challenge, what, one of the things I did in the book, I briefly dealt with other interpretations of the creation days in Genesis 1. So I talked about the literary framework view. I talked about the day-age theory. I talked about days of revelation. I think I would probably also want to add to that now um, what's become known as the analogical days concept. This is something that's been proposed by a biblical scholar called Jack Collins. And essentially, according to the analogical days approach, if I've understood it correctly, he sees God's creative activity in Genesis 1 
as being described there in the Bible by analogy with our work week. So we see God yeah. working, we see a, a pattern of day and night and rest and act, activity and rest. And then, of course, we have the Sabbath rest. And the analogical day approach says that God is patterning his description of what he did in creation on what we do. And my response, I think, to that would be, I think that has things completely the wrong way around. Because if you look at a passage like Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11, where, which is right there in the middle of the Ten Commandments, of course, we're told that God, that we're to work for six days and rest on the seventh day because God created the world in six days and rested on the yeah. seventh. So it's it sort of God states is the exact opposite, doesn't it? That's it states the exact opposite. Yeah, so it's not that God is patterning his creative week after what we do. It's that we are patterning what we do after God's creative week. So I think I'd probably want to include that because it, that analogical days view, I, I do see getting some traction among evangelicals today. And so I'd, I'd probably want to include that. In terms of the geological, there are a few things that have happened since 2009 that I think are worth mentioning that I think helped to bolster and support the case that I made in the book. One section of the, of the book deals with this issue of bioturbation. Now, just to explain this, yeah. imagine that you have a sediment layer deposited in the shallow oceans, a layer of sand. Very quickly in the modern world, what happens is that marine animals, marine invertebrates, worms and chinoderms uh, and you know, all kinds of other invertebrates will colonize this sediment layer. They live in the sediment, they live on the sediment, they burrow through the sediment to feed. And these animals are very prolific in terms of their burrowing activities, and they're very effective at destroying sedimentary layering. Structure in the sediment is very quickly destroyed by the activities of these animals. So if the sedimentary layers in the Earth's rock record were deposited over long timescales. There would have been ample time for burrowing animals to have destroyed the structure in those sedimentary layers. So we should see in the rock record these layers having been churned up and homogenized by all of this burrowing activity. And in the book, I made the point that actually what we see in the ancient rock record is that the sedimentary layering is very well preserved and that there is a generally low intensity of, of bioturbation, burrowing activity. And uh, that, that was something that I wrote about back in 2009. Since two creationists, Art Chadwick and Leonard Brand and their colleagues, have been studying, doing a systematic survey of the sedimentary rock layers of the Colorado Plateau, now, the Colorado Plateau is a good place to do this kind of survey because the rocks are very well exposed. And also, we have a good representative cross-section of the geological record. And so what they've done is they've worked their way systematically through representative rock sections from the Cambrian right through to the Eocene. And they're literally going up the rock section layer by layer and looking for evidence of bioturbation and estimating so the intensity of the bioturbation in each individual layer. And what they found in this study is that the levels of bioturbation are actually generally very low. Usually you get horizons where you have more intense bioturbation, sometimes layers that have been completely homogenized, but 
Generally speaking, most of these layers are well-preserved. The sedimentary structures are well-preserved. The amount of bioturbation is fairly minimal. And so that study is actually a very helpful confirmation of that, that section of the book. So that's one area where I think some useful yeah. new work has been done. Another project, and this was one I was very privileged to be involved in myself, was the Coconino Sandstone Project. It was led oh, yeah. by Dr. John Whitmore. So John is a geologist at Cedarville University. And John and I and a number of others worked together on a project that was funded at the time by the Institute for Creation Research. It was a project that went on for a number of years, concluded in 2012. And we were basically being funded to do a major field and laboratory investigation of the Coconino sandstone, which is a Permian rock unit. It crops out very prominently in Grand Canyon, but it can actually be traced right across northern and central Arizona. And the Coconino sandstone is one of those geological challenges that is often comes up when, when, when skeptics are talking about flood geology, because the Coconino sandstone ever since at least the 1930s, when it was studied by the great Grand Canyon geologist Edwin McKee, it's been interpreted as a windblown desert sandstone. Okay, so it, the idea is that it was deposited as uh, large dunes in an ancient desert environment. And obviously that poses a problem for flood geology because you can't really have a major desert sandstone unit in the middle of the global flood. So we were right. uh, funded to restudy the Coconino and we found, we found basically that many of the claims that were being made in the literature about the Coconino sandstone, things that were meant to support the desert environment idea were actually not correct. They weren't actually supported by the data that we collected. And we also found a number of pieces of evidence that, that actually pointed in the opposite direction, that the Coconino sandstone was in fact deposited underwater. It was deposited probably in the form of some kind of large submarine sand dune called, called sand waves, or at least that's the closest sort of modern analog that we have. And I think the Coconino project in, in many ways is a good case study for how we can tackle other hard problems in creationist geology. It shows what can be done if we have the resources and the focused attention on a particular hard geological problem. Yeah. Uh, so those are a couple of areas that I'd update in the book. Fantastic. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So I would love to hear, let's, so let's talk about the rape thing for yeah. just a minute, because that is one of those mainstay sort of study that that we will be focusing on and pointing back to as creationists for a long time because we really do rely on the result that study was a make or break moment honestly for creationism and there again there are some who say that the that the rate studies did in fact not turn out how they would have wanted them to now, I disagree with that, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I think there are a lot of presuppositions that go into this when it gets to dating issues. I think yeah. there are, anyway, all of those things. So I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts on the work of Ray. Was it indeed successful? What did it show us? What do we have to learn from it? What can we use from it? Any of your thoughts? Yeah. So 
basically, there are a number of different aspects to the rate study, a number of different sort of projects that were going on simultaneously. They all tended to point in the same direction, which was towards this idea that nuclear decay rates had been accelerated in the Earth's past. So one of the things that the rate team looked at was the degree of concordance or agreement between the results of different kinds of radioisotope dating methods. So we've got different methods, potassium argon, rubidium strontium, samarium neodymium, and so on. And generally, because it's quite expensive to do radiometric dating, geologists tend not to use multiple methods on the same rock and mineral samples. You might use a couple of different methods, but sure. what the rate thing did was they used three or four different methods on the same rock samples uh, or samples from the same rock units. And what they found is that those different dating methods give different results, often results that differ by hundreds of millions of years. And the even more interesting point is that those disagreements, those discordances seem to be systematic. So they're not random. Ah. Certain dating methods seem to give older ages than other methods. And this seems to be a bit of a clue as to something else that's going on, because from theoretical physics considerations, we would expect that if some episode of accelerated decay had occurred, that isotopes that had different half-lives would be accelerated to different extents, and so you'd expect these kinds of systematic discordances. So that was one of the things they did. Another part of the project was Russ Humphreys looked at helium retention in the rocks of the Earth's crust. He found that in New Mexico, there was a particular site there in New Mexico where the rocks were dated, I think, at one and a half billion years old. Helium is generated as a byproduct of the radioactive decay going on in, in the rocks. But helium is a very kind of slippery gas, if you like. It can readily escape from these rocks. And so you wouldn't expect that the helium would still be there if the, all this decay had happened a very long time ago. But in actual fact, these rocks do retain quite a large proportion of the helium that appears to have been generated by decay. So what Humphreys did was he, he was able to send off samples of the rocks so that the rate of helium diffusion in the rocks could be measured. And he found that the rate of helium diffusion was indeed consistent with, with an age for these rocks of about 6,000 years. So again, this is consistent with the accelerated nuclear decay idea because it looks as if there has been a lot of nuclear decay to generate all, the, all of the helium and to give the 1.5 billion year age that comes from radiometric determinations on these rocks. But the helium diffusion data suggests that all of this decay happened within the last 6,000 years or so. Hmm. So that was another sort of piece of the puzzle. And then Andrew Snelling also looked at something called polonium radio halos. Radio halos are small spherical areas of radiation damage that you can see in rock crystals, micro microscopic areas of damage. And he was a, it's quite a complex argument, but he was able to demonstrate that it looked as if hundreds of millions of years of uranium decay had happened within a relatively short time span because it was constrained by the half-lives of the polonium daughter mm. products to produce the yeah. polonium radio halos. And there's this quite complex sort of argument, but it, it essentially it shows that hundred, hundreds of millions of years worth of decay seemed to have happened in a very short space of time.
So those were some of the sort of areas they looked at. There, there was also some work done on radiocarbon, carbon-14 in ancient samples, particularly in coal and diamond samples. John Baumgartner worked on. And so basically together, they argued that these multiple lines of evidence all supported this concept of accelerated decay. And that this means that during the flood, there, there was some episode of accelerated decay and therefore the rocks that were formed during the flood give ages which are artificially inflated yeah. if we assume that decay rates measured today have always been constant throughout the Earth's past. Understood. So my guess that, based on what you've said there, my, my guess would be that many skeptics of this study would probably latch on to the fact that the study did show millions of years worth of activity, but not so much latch on to the fact that what was shown is that there's also parts of the study that show that they could, that decay couldn't have happened over millions of years. It's constrained by half-lives and other things that, that sh just shorten that period of time. So it's, you really have to look at both sides of that. Now, I've even heard, I don't think most creationists take this position. I think Kurt Wise's position is that there, that God maybe even changed the laws of physics here. I don't, I don't know what you think, but it, it's certainly possible. One way that I thought about it is from, from kind of a theological almost point of view, I'd a whole lot easier accept a God who judges the world and even can change the laws of physics than I would accept a, a God whose character w would be implied by the deep time sort of scenario. And I've always said, whatever God did, God is glorified in that. If I am proven to be wrong one, one, one day when I, when I cross through Peter's pearly gate, so to speak, then I, I will repent for being wrong. But I'll do so under having had the best intentions. I really think that I would much rather have a God who can bend the laws of physics if he so choose than, than look at a scenario where death, disease, bloodshed, suffering was used in the process of creation. That just doesn't seem like what the Bible reports about who God is to me. That's yeah. fantastic. You're right. I mean, there are challenges that have arisen from the rate work. And one, one of them is obviously what was the mechanism for this episode or episodes of accelerated sure. And that's been an area which I don't understand. I have to say it's an area <laughs> of theoretical physics that is way beyond, beyond me. Eugene Chafin has, was the rate scientist that was looking into theoretical mechanisms of accelerated decay. One of the other problems, of course, is one that often is raised is the heat problem. Yeah. Uh, if you accelerate nuclear decay rates, then you generate a vast amount of heat. And how is that heat disposed of? We know that the earth wasn't vaporized by the heat. Here we are. Right? Here we are. And we have constraints on the temperatures that the rocks themselves have reached. So we, we know that something must have happened to dispose of that heat. And again, various ideas have been put forward. I think Russ Humphreys has published some ideas about that. My colleague, Dr. Bill Warricker, who he's a, an associate researcher with Biblical Creation Trust. We've been funding him actually to do a very depth analysis of the heat problem and he's been publishing a series of papers in the answers research journal and there are more papers in that series to come where he's doing perhaps the most rigorous mathematical analysis of all of the different sources of heat that would have been generated during the flood trying to put numbers on it so that we can actually quantify oh, yeah. what, what amount of heat we're talking about and looking at possible solutions or avenues of future research. And people can probably check out those papers, the Answers Research Journal site. Okay. 
Yeah, fantastic. That's wonderful. All right, let's move on past this. Past that, of course, we're always talking a little bit about time issues. That's uh, something that goes through all of these things. But let's talk about what you called life, past, and present. That's section, I reckon it's section three uh, of the books. And you're talking about evolution and barominology here and all kinds of fun stuff. You take it away, my friend. Yeah, this section of the book really is looking at the history and the pattern of life from a biblical perspective. We can begin, of course, in Genesis chapter one, where we read that God created living things in the course of a single week. And as we've already said, when we were thinking about time questions, this appears to be an ordinary week made up of ordinary days like those we now experience. And God creates different groups of organisms on different days within that creation week. So that immediately tells us a couple of things. We're not dealing with natural processes operating over long periods of time. And we also recognize that there must be fundamental discontinuities between different groups of living things. They had separate origins. And of course, the Bible talks about different kinds being created separately, groups being created according to their kinds. And this therefore have long recognized that in, instead of the single evolutionary tree of life, where all living organisms essentially can be traced back to a, a universal common ancestor, pattern of relationships between living things is probably much more like a, a, an orchard of individual trees where each tree represents a different created group, a different created kind. So in the creation orchard approach, we have individual kinds, but there's the potential for great diversity within the kinds. You can have, for example, the dog kind. God created the dogs, but within the dog kind, there's huge potential for diversity, not only many different types of domestic dogs, but perhaps wolves and dingoes and coyotes. And, and this has led to the development of a whole new sort of creationist reinterpretation of biology. So in 1941, a creation biologist by the name of Frank Lewis Marsh introduced the concept of the baramin. That comes from the Hebrew meaning created kind, bara and min. And he argued that these baramins or created kinds were separately created, but had the potential to, to generate a great deal of variation. And he identified those created kinds, partly based on their overall appearance or morphology, combined with um, evidence from hybridization studies. If two organisms could crossbreed, could interbreed and have fertile offspring or have offspring, then he regarded them as basically members of the same created group, the same created kind. Now, the hybridization criterion is useful, but it does have some limitations. For example, it can't be applied to organisms that we only know from the fossil record. It can't be applied to organisms that reproduce asexually. And as I've perhaps already hinted in something I said a moment ago, there are different levels of success with hybridization. You can have hybrids that give rise to fertile offspring. You can have hybridization events that give rise to infertile offspring. You can have hybridization events that generate perhaps a fetus, but it doesn't come to term. There are all kinds of different levels of success. And so what counts as a successful hybridization? The other thing about hybridization is that it's, it may provide positive evidence. So if two organisms can hybridize, then you know, we, we might conclude that they're members of the same kind. 
But what if two organisms are unable to hybridize? Does that mean that they're not members of the same kind? Not necessarily. That doesn't necessarily follow because there could be all kinds of reasons why two organisms that are actually members of the same kind are not able to hybridize. Hybridization gives us some clues, but it's not sufficient really. So that then brings us to 90 when Kurt Wise introduced what has become a whole new discipline in creation biology called baraminology, the study of the created kinds. Kurt Wise basically formalized some of the terminology that's used within the discipline. And he also proposed a whole range of criteria. So instead of just relying on hybridization to allow us to identify the created groups, he proposed a number of other criteria that could be applied as other types of evidence. And this discipline of baromenology has been one of the real growth areas over the last couple of decades. A huge amount of work has been done. We now have an expanding toolkit in baromenology that in, in includes a whole range of different methods, including a number of statistical methods that we can apply to groups of organisms to identify where we see patterns of continuity, which we interpret as evidence that organisms belong to the same kind, and evidence of discontinuity, morphological gaps that point to organisms being in different kinds. And essentially, yeah, th these methods have now been applied to a large number of groups of organisms. And at least for the terrestrial vertebrates, so the backboned animals that live on the land, it looks as if in, in maybe two thirds, maybe around 70% of cases that we've studied, the created kind is approximately equivalent to the family, the family in some modern taxonomic systems. The family level would be equivalent to the dogs. The dogs, the canidae, are a biological family. The cats, the felidae, are a biological family. The horses, the equidae, another biological family. So it looks as if these created groups are made up of many individual species and that the kind is generally approximated by the family. In some cases, it's a bit less than a family. It might be a genus. In some cases, it might be a bit higher in the taxonomic ranking than a family. It might be a super family or even an order. So th those are the kinds of re results that we're getting. Now, why is all of this important to us as creationist biologists? Like being able to identify what those created groups are is actually the foundation for everything else that we do in creation biology. So if we want to answer questions about the extent of diversification after the flood, the rate of diversification after the flood, how quickly did those creatures diversify when they came off the ark? If we want to answer questions about broader patterns of biological similarity and dissimilarity and investigate the problem of homology or agents, or if we want to look at biogeographic distributions, so the distribution of organisms over the face of the earth and how did they get to where they are today and to what extent have they diversified in the places that they reached when they, when they spread across the earth after the... It's about the origin of natural evils, things like tis and pathogens and parasites and all of the kind of bad things that have arisen since the fall of Adam. All of these questions are things that we can only really answer 
when we have a good grasp of the nature of the created kinds. Really, although taxonomy and classification might seem a very dry subject uh, to some people, it is actually a really crucial part of creation biology because it's the key that's going to help us unlock the answers to all of those other questions. Yeah, I was just, man, again, so many thoughts going on in my head, like that basically all of those questions that are, that you start to think about that people challenge us on, because again, evolutionary dogma, that kind of just is the challenge to creationism and questions about how fast, I know a lot of people make fun of creationists for actually being hyper-evolutionists, so to speak, you're thinking that after we get, you know, came off the ark, evolution happened, it just happened like super, super fast. And so all of these things are questions that can be answered once we know what fits where. What goes where? And a couple of things I thought were interesting, two important things. One would be the limitations, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I don't think I am. The limitations of evolutionary biosystematics, right? So, okay, so baromenology is a system of biosystematic. The sort of main modern evolutionary system of biosystematics would be cladistics, I do believe, unless they've, they've moved beyond that, but I'm pretty sure that's where we're at. And so... The thing that's important about cladistics and all of the ones that came before it, according to Dr. Wise, who invented baromenology, or at least systematized it, um, is that they really are made for detecting similarity and not for dissimilarity in, in, in general. And like you started out by saying, the biblical record seems to suggest that dissimilarity is built into the fabric, really of creation. Different organisms were created on different days of creation. Different organisms are said in the Bible to, to be reproduced after their kind. And there's, so there's a question as to if it's talking about reproduction necessarily or, or what it's talking about. But the point seems to be that there are kinds of things that are not related to other kinds of things. And so we needed a system that would detect this dissimilarity. And that was really the impetus for developing baromenology as a system of, of biosystematics because it could detect that. And so it's, it's like the cards are stacked against the creationist when using an evolutionary system of biosystematics because it can't detect the very thing that a creationist need, needs to be able to see. Yeah. So I, I, th I thought that was interesting. Right. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, cladistics is uh, you know, a powerful method for taxonomy, but it is inherently evolutionary because you're absolutely right. It's blind to discontinuity, even if it exists. It's, you know, <laughs> cladistic yeah. programs will draw a branching tree that goes back to a common ancestor because that's exactly what the program is designed to do. <laughs> You've, it, it will never find discontinuity, even if it exists. And so we needed to develop our own taxonomic methods that would allow us to look for evidence of continuity and discontinuity. And Kurt Wise talks about discontinuity as being pervasive. It's present throughout the whole of the biological creation. That there's kind of, There are deep discontinuities and then there are shallower discontinuities, but it, it's there. And what's really interesting is with these baromenology methods, when we actually look for discontinuity, we find it. There it um, is. Yeah. But, you, but you won't find it with cladistics. <laughs> no. 
Yeah, Dr. Wise uses the analogy of of noodles or spaghetti or noodles, whatever you want to call it. But he said when he was teaching classes, he used to ask the students to go out and purchase different forms, noodles or whatever, and bring them back and create an evolutionary tree of life. And he said in all cases, they all created evolutionary trees of life, but they all looked different. They Some categorized it by shape. Some categorized it by the ridges. Some categorized it by the just other features of what it looked like. And he said, in all cases, not one time did anyone stop to ask if that's what they should be doing with the noodles. They just did it because that's what they were told to do. And and so the question is, is that the correct way? Is that how they should be categorized and organized? And so when we ask that question in the real world of the biology, we go back to the Bible and we say, okay, how should this be done? And it should be done in a way that we can see similarity and dissimilarity. And so that's where um, barometrology was developed. And I think it is quite clear in the last 30 years or so now that, you know, how far we have come, even with as few researchers that we have doing this work, I think it's pretty clear that Dr. Wise was greatly used by God on this and was totally barking up the right tree. Um, And so it's really in a helpful I think, framework for doing biology from a creationist perspective. To tie into that, the other thing I thought was interesting is you were talking about how creationist barominology tends to show that most most discontinuity is happening around the level of family, sometimes a little bit above, sometimes a little bit below. And you can imagine my delight a few years ago when I was reading Dr. Michael Behe's book, Darwin Devolves. And I got to the page, I was reading it because I was preparing to interview him on a podcast and I did interview him for that podcast. And I mentioned this to him, I'm not sure how happy he was with me, but highlighted and drew all over the page that showed that his research and his looking at the data had come to the same conclusion, that there is biological, at least not necessarily discontinuity, but that there is a, the Darwinian mechanism does not have the capacity to create change that goes beyond the level of, in most cases, family, and in some cases, order, in some cases, genus, exactly like you said. And I said, Dr. Behe, I'm not sure if you realize this, but your research just showed what creationists have been saying for the past however many years um, to be true. And the reason I think that's significant is because Behe is a very well-respected biologist. He's a very well-respected in his fields and what he does. And for him to say that, it was just another feather in the cap, I think, of the creationists. Now, of course, the irony is he believes in not necessarily Darwinian mechanisms for evolution, but he does believe in universal common ancestry, right? He doesn't have any qualms with that. He just thinks that God did some sort of miraculous thing to create that change between the level of family or order or whatever. And so I just thought that was really interesting that it confirmed the creationist research, at least to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So let's move on then to this last and final section here. And again, I just want to say uh, to you, uh, Paul, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. This has been a fantastic conversation so far. It's almost over. For those who are listening and watching, if you're on YouTube, like this video, share this video, subscribe to the channel so you see more awesome interviews and, uh, and things like this. I just think it's fantastic. There are real people who are really smart and other people have even given them certificates of appreciation called degrees that, that say that they're pretty smart who believe the Bible, who just believe that what the Bible says is true and that when we look into the physical world, we should be able to see evidence of that. So if you're interested in this kind of content, please 
follow along with the channel. And with that, I am going to ask Brother Garner to continue on to the last and final section, which is the flood and its aftermath. And I love talking about the flood, studying about the flood. It's actually kind of ironic that you've got this universal catastrophe that where God judged the world. And for some reason, it's somber, but it's also a fascinating area of research for many people. I think that, again, the flood is very integral. I was talking to Dr. Matt McLean about this a few, I guess, a month or so ago now. And the flood is just integral, uh, integral to understanding the creationist model and the history of life on earth. Yeah, I can't wait to hear more about it from your perspective. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The flood is central to uh, creationist thinking. And very often, uh, I think it gets neglected in, in discussions about uh, origins. Um, uh, you know, and we, we, we need to think more about the flood. So uh, in the book, uh, the model of the flood, which I described and which you know, I think is, is still the, the best model of the flood available to us, is a model called catastrophic plate tectonics. Um, Wickham and Morris's uh, book, The Genesis Flood, which was the seminal book that really launched the modern creationist revival back in the 60s and which put the flood at the centerpiece of their creationist argument, that was published before the whole plate tectonics revolution happened in, in the late 1960s and, and early 70s. But it turns out, actually, that plate tectonics was a very important key to understanding the physical mechanism of the global flood described in the Bible. To understand this model, we need to understand something about the structure of the earth. The earth, as we understand it, is made of a series of concentric layers. So at the center of the earth, we have the core, which is metallic, has a solid inner core and a liquid outer core. And then we have a thick, rocky layer around the core called the mantle and uh, that's sort of silicate materials and then we have this thin outer layer called the crust the crust comes in two types there's ocean crust which is basaltic it's made of a rock basalt and it's relatively dense and then we have the continental crust and that has a granitic composition and it's much thicker than the oceanic crust and it also is less dense that's why we have high standing continents and we have the ocean basins partly because of the thicknesses and densities of the rocks that underlie the oceanic and continental crust and the crust of the earth is broken up into a series of rigid plates which can move relative to one another. So they can move towards one another, they can move apart from one another or slide past one another. And according to the catastrophic plate tectonics model, the flood began when the cold, dense ocean crust began to break away, break loose from the margins of the pre-flood continents and began to plunge into the underlying mantle. And the reason it did that is because although it has a similar composition to the underlying mantle, because it's cold and dense, uh, it, uh, it means that there's this sort of gravitational, uh, this uh, density difference that means that the ocean crust began to sink into the much warmer underlying mantle. As it sank into the mantle along what we call subduction zones, this established a kind of large-scale flow within the mantle because although the mantle is rock material, it has this extraordinary ability 
to flow in a plastic fashion under certain conditions of, of uh, temperature and stress. So the mantle then begins to undergo this kind of enormous stirring, this complete overturn. And to compensate for the old ocean floor, which is plunging down into the Earth's interior along the subduction zones, hot material is welling up at the spreading ridges at the places where the plates are moving apart from one another and producing new ocean floor. And John Baumgardner was instrumental in laying the foundations for this model with the work that he did on runaway subduction. He showed that the plates today are moving extremely slowly, that under certain conditions of stress, these plates could actually move much faster. They could, they could get into a kind of run, thermal runaway situation where the plates are moving at rates of meters per second. And the way that this sort of helps us to explain what was happening at the time of the flood is that as this new hot material wells up at the mid-ocean ridges, that hot material comes into contact with the cold seawater and causes the seawater to essentially vaporize into steam. And one of the consequences is that you get these enormous steam eruptions or steam explosions along thousands of kilometers of mid-ocean ridge. And this helps us to explain the fountains of the great deep described in Genesis chapter seven and verses. Also, because this hot material, which is welling up and replacing the ocean, the cold, dense ocean floor that's descending into the Earth's interior, because that hot material is thermally expanded, thermally buoyant, the level of the sea floor is raised. The ocean basins are in effect become shallower and what this does is it displaces ocean water from the ocean basins onto the continents. And so we have a mechanism here, not only for the fountains of the great deep, but also the mechanism that explains the flooding of the land, the flooding of the continents. And then eventually when all of the old ocean floor is consumed and the new hot ocean floor begins to cool down, eventually the flood comes to an end and the ocean basins begin to subside again and the water runs off the continents back into the ocean basins. So we have this plate tectonics has given us this sort of insight into what was happening at the time of the flood. And it's provided for us, uh, you know, a comprehensive model of a uh, scientific model of the global flood. And I think one of the, for me, one of the really exciting things about catastrophic plate tectonics is the way in which it not only explains all of the same kinds of data that conventional plate tectonics explains. So it, it explains the apparent jigsaw fit of the continents. Why does the eastern coastline of South America look as if it fits into the western margin of Africa? Well, that's because the Atlantic Ocean Basin has opened up. And catastrophic plate tectonics explains, you know, what, why that's the case. It explains the distribution of things like earthquakes and volcanoes and mountain belts and fossil distributions. It explains the structure of the ocean floor. These are things that both catastrophic plate tectonics and conventional plate tectonics explains. However, catastrophic plate tectonics also helps us to explain a number of features of the earth which are not explained or at least not well explained by the conventional plate tectonics model. For example, 
evidence of rapid reversals of the Earth's magnetic field. In conventional plate tectonics theory, geomagnetic reversals are thought to be things that happen over long timescales, but we have evidence from the geological record of very rapid changes in the Earth's magnetic field consistent with uh, CPT. We have evidence from uh, seismic tomography, which allows us, in effect, to look inside the Earth to uh, using earthquake waves to kind of get, get information about what, what the structure of the interior of the Earth is. And we see evidence of uh, slabs of ocean floor that have subducted into the Earth's interior and that have ex that extend all the way down through the depth of the mantle right down to the to the top of the core and again this particular observation is uniquely explained by catastrophic plate tectonics because in conventional plate tectonics this was simply not expected it was expected that subducted plates would tend to uh, sort of sink um to rel relatively shallow depths in the earth's mantle and then get stuck and unable to penetrate down through the entire thickness of the mantle. But in CPT, because we're dealing with plates that are moving much more rapidly, um, they have the momentum to punch their way right the way down through the Earth's mantle. And so there are these features of Earth's geology, which CPT uniquely explains. So for me, that's very powerful as a scientist to see a model that is able to explain more than uh, the uh, model that it's seeking to replace. That's very exciting. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, um, it's a signpost that we're, we're, we're heading in the right direction in terms of trying to explain these features of the Earth's geology. Uh, one consequence of all of this catastrophic activity during the flood is that Immediately after the flood, the oceans are actually very warm. We can predict from this that we have oceans which are considerably warmer than they are at the present day. One of the consequences of this is that in the immediate post-flood period, there would be a large amount of evaporation of seawater from the surface of the oceans, and the world would in effect be extremely warm and extremely wet. And over the subsequent decades and centuries, the earth, as it recovered from the flood, would, have, would eventually cool and dry out. And we see evidence of this in the geological record on both the seafloor in ocean floor cores and also in the record on the continents. We see evidence of this sort of cooling and drying trend after the flood. And of course, it culminates eventually in a rapid advance of the ice sheets. The precipitation that's falling on the continents eventually begins to fall as snow. And the snow falls so quickly that it doesn't have time to melt during the summer. And you have this rapid accumulation of ice sheets that culminates in, in the ice age. So we have ice sheets advancing over the mid to high latitudes. And in the book, I talked about Michael Ord's work to develop this model of a rapid post-flood ice age and all of the kinds of evidence that it helps to explain. And one of the things actually since the book came out is that work in all of these areas has continued. Work has continued to develop our understanding of catastrophic plate tectonics, 
to understand the physical mechanisms, the, man, the dynamics of the mantle during the flood. There's also a lot of computer modeling work, climate modeling that's been done to look at post-flood climates. Larry Vardaman at the Institute for Creation Research pioneered kind of computer modeling. Now, Dr. Steve Dolmer, who's at Cedarville University, atmospheric physicist there, he has taken up this climate modeling work and is building on what Larry Vardaman did. And the models are becoming increasingly sophisticated and it's helping to confirm some of the some aspects of Michael Ord's model perhaps calling into question some of the other aspects of the model other work has been done looking at surging of ice sheets so that the movement of the ice is possible within the short time frame that we envisage for the post-flood ice age scientists at the Institute for Creation Research are beginning to do some modeling work on the accumulation of the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets. And so there's a lot of interesting work that is continuing to go on today in all of these areas that I described in the book. Yeah, um, I was I was thinking as you were as you were uh, talking about, you know, a lot of times we get so caught up on the fact that we, we have such a different worldview from people doing evolutionary science and conventional science and all these things. And I, you know, while it's true that we have a lot of differences, I think it would be a mistake to like, you know, think of their work as something to be um, totally tossed out. What I'm getting at here is there are like conventional plate tectonics versus catastrophic plate tectonics, for example. I want to say you missed it by that much. You're like you were so close, right? But if you just, again, if you just approach the question with biblical assumptions of time and age, it's like you would be able to explain so many more things. Another analogy to this is the is um, floating fo uh, the floating flo forests uh, theory. I can't talk today. The floating forest uh, um, kind of idea that uh, the Dr. Wise, um, I think him and some others had worked on. And the basic idea there was like, we have these forms, these what many times we want to call transitional forms that appear in the fossil record. And in the history of creationism, there have been different attempts to explain this. I don't necessarily want to use the terminology to explain it away, but I think sometimes something like that has been done to say, oh, this is eventually this is just going to be shown to be part of this or that kind. And what Dr. Y showed with the floating fo a forest theory was that well, actually these could have been their own kinds that God had created. And here's a way that that we would have seen the organization of fossils and things as we find them to be correct. And so it turns out that there are a lot of there's a lot of explanatory power to this theory without going all into it. All that to say, it's like we can build upon the work that these people are doing. And if we just start asking different questions, the right questions, the biblical questions, we can really advance with that. So I guess, again, just encouraging people to really get into these fields for themselves and just start approaching some of the same problems by asking a little bit different questions. And, yeah. uh, and that's how we advance. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You often hear people say, don't you, in order to be a young earth creationist, you've got to throw out 90% of modern science. And I don't think that's correct. I think quite often it feels to me like adopting 90% of modern science and then, like you say, making interesting adjustments. So yeah. in the case of catastrophic plate tectonics, what happens if we speed up the rate at which those plates are plunging into the Earth's mantle and you play around with those kinds of parameters and what comes out at the end is a new model that actually explains a whole lot more of the observational data. So, so you know, like, like you say, you don't have to 
throw out sort of 90% of modern science quite often. It's just asking the right questions and adapting theories in interesting ways. Yeah. Yeah. Another example is what you were talking about with the ice age. It's where does, where do, where does an ice age fit into a biblical model? You know, creationists don't deny that such a thing exists. We just have some disagreements with, you know, for example, that uh, in conventional science, you, they want to say that there were multiple ice ages over various amounts of time at different, you know, points of time in, in the, in earth's past. But it's clear to creationist researchers that there was an ice, I think in the book you put it like an ice advance. There was an ice, there was a period of time where there was a lot of ice on the earth. And how do we explain that? Guess what? Creationists agree with that. And we have a mechanism that we think would have caused it. There it is. We don't have to avoid those things. We can embrace them and improve upon them. And again, I think that's just a great incentive for people to get involved. I think maybe it might scare people to think, oh, if I get involved in creation science, I have to tear down the whole edifice of everything that, I, that I've ever learned and build it up from brand new. And it's, no, just start asking some different questions against the work that's already been done and, yeah. and go on from there. Um, one of the things that I don't think we've talked about quite yet with regard to that, and then, then I'll let you go, is the hominin fossils and some of the discontinuity that was shown as a result of after the ice age, after the flood. Can you go into that just a little bit and then we'll be done? <laughs> yeah, sure. No, yeah. The, what, one of the chapters in my book, I talk about the history of humanity, particularly in the context of the dispersal from Babel. And of course, I, as part of that, I get into the whole question of how do we interpret the hominin fossil record? Now, one of the interesting things about my book is that is one of the areas where it's quite out of date now because since 2009, actually, a lot of new discoveries have been made, quite a number of new fossil discoveries. So we didn't know about Australopithecus sediba or Homo naledi or the Denisovans. These are all sort of fossil discoveries that have been made really since, since the book came out. And also, no barominology work had been done on fossil hominins at the time I wrote my book. So all of that has happened since 2009. Now, in the book, I, I kind of um, laid out a case for understanding there to be discontinuity in the hominin fossil record, that there are a group of fossil fossils which appear to be very human-like, and I put into that category things like the Neanderthals and Homo erectus and perhaps some of the Homo habilis fossils. And then on the other hand, there are the fossils which are much more ape-like. And in particular, I talked about the Australopithecines, the southern apes. People might be familiar with Lucy, Australopithecus afarensis. Um, so those I regard as more ape-like. Now, what's interesting is that the barominology work, which has now been done on fossil hominins, has tended broadly to confirm that those intuitions that I laid out in the book, which is, is quite satisfying. So. It looks as if from the barominology work that's been done that members of the genus Homo are members of the human created kind and that most of the Australopithecines are members of the ape kind. Now, there is one, if you like, fly in the ointment, and that's Australopithecus sediba. So uh, this has created some sort of discussion in the literature because Australopithecus sediba, this new discovery, often regarded as the most human-like Australopithecine yet discovered, consistently in the barominology studies has clustered with the humans on the human side. So that raises some interesting questions. I mean, it could be that we haven't quite understood the data sets 
and there's something funny about those data sets that's causing Sadiba to cluster in the wrong place. Or it could be that Sadiba really is human. Maybe it's not really an Australopithecine at all. Perhaps it's actually Homo Sadiba, perhaps. Um, and so, so that's kind of a, you know, a, one of these areas where there's still some discussion. But I don't think we should allow that to cloud the overall picture. So the overall picture is pretty clear that we do see clear discontinuity that, it, that we consistently find in all of the statistical baromenology studies that we've done between humans on the one hand and apes on the other. We don't find evidence of continuity. We do see very distinct clusters and things fall into one or other of those, those clusters. So that's been quite interesting. And of course, another development since the book came out is all of the genome sequencing work that's been done. So we now have genome sequencing that has shown that Neanderthals and the Denisovans interbred with modern humans. And again, of course, that helps to confirm, I think, that they are members of the same created kind because they appear to have been interbreeding with one another. They are members of the human baromen. So, yeah, so it's been interesting to see a lot of the new work that's been done and yeah. quite gratifying that I haven't had to throw out everything that's in that chapter of the book that it has helped to <laughs> confirm some of yeah. the things that I said back in 2009. You know, th this is actually another one of those areas where a completely independent and at times, um, you know, hostile uh, to, you know, uh, researcher and person to the to the creation movement helps to kind of confirm like um, uh, Dr. William Lane Craig, a fantastic Christian apologist and philosopher and theologian is a very much n not a young age creationist. Uh, and uh, I would in fact, I would say he's anti young age creationist. Uh, so he's got a book on the historical Adam, the research that he has done. And he's done that in conjunction somewhat with Dr. Joshua Swamidas. And so what they have, what Craig, the conclusion that he has come to is that the evidence is so strong that Neanderthals and I think Denisovans as well are basically humans. Um, you know, that, that we, we, you know, they looked a little different than us, but, but basically he said the evidence is just mounting each and every day that they are humans. Now, creationists have been saying this for quite some time, and now our studies are seeming to bear it out. But that's also the conclusion that Dr. Craig has come to. And so what he does is he puts them, because he does accept the long ages, deep time, and all of that is just fine with him. He actually puts Adam to be a created you know, one of these, a, a probably something like a Neanderthal or a Denisovan or modern human, whatever you want to call it, but about 700,000 years ago. So he puts the events of Genesis 3, essentially, 700,000 years ago. That, and that was hard for him to do. He admitted. And so the, the evidence for the humanity of Neanderthals and Denisovans, in other words, was so strong for him that he went that far back. Actually, anyway, he actually went with that even knowing how big of a, uh, or how problematic it would sound for a Christian to accept that the events of Genesis 3 were really that long ago. Um, and so that, I think that should just be serve as yet another confirmation that we're barking up the right tree here. Everything that we're, every, these things that we're saying eventually are being recognized by people who, are, who, ha who don't have a stake in the game, really, especially not as young age creationists. So I find that even more gratifying and interesting. Yeah. And, and do you have any thoughts on that? I'm just curious. And just any thoughts on, in general, this trend where 
it's oh looks like we were right all along you know you hate to be like that but but you know yeah anyway i'm just curious well, that, i mean that's what it highlights to me is the problem's the chronology right the problem is the yeah. time scale it's that seven hundred thousand years that's the problem the data i think very readily fits the creation model yeah if people are willing to you know put put a question mark over the chronology and yeah. that that's uh, yeah that just helps <laughs> to confirm for me fantastic that's wonderful mm -hmm. cool oh that's great paul this has been just a great discussion I've, I've certainly enjoyed myself i'd love to know we talked about it a little bit just anywhere that folks can find you that the folks can support the work that you're doing and just any final thoughts that you have yeah i'd love to hear all about that yeah, I've really enjoyed the conversation. So thanks very much again for inviting sure. me. Yeah, people can check out Biblical Creation Trust on the internet. We have a website, biblicalcreationtrust.org, and uh, people can find out more about us there. There's a, a button where you can sign up to receive our regular newsletter or our monthly emails. And uh, there's also a donate button on the homepage. We're, we're supported just by individual Christians that want to help help support what we do. We're very grateful for anyone who can support us in that way. We're also on Facebook. We have a Facebook page, Biblical Creation Trust. You can find us there. The podcast, which I mentioned with Todd Wood as well, people may want to know how to find us there. We're on all of the usual podcast streaming platforms. And if you go to the Core Academy of Science website, then all of the streaming options are laid out there. The website is CoreSci, which is C-O-R-E-S-C-I dot org forward slash podcast and uh, you'll find all of the information there and the show notes and you'll also find us on youtube if you search for let's talk creation on youtube you'll find the podcast there and do go and check us out and subscribe that would be great um yeah in terms of sort of final thoughts i said at the beginning i wrote the new creationism because i wanted to bring this positive creationist model building to a wider audience but there's still a lot of things that we don't know. We certainly haven't solved all of the problems. We have lots of encouraging things that are going on, but there's still a great need for more research in, in many areas. And so I would just encourage anybody who perhaps is a young person who's studying science, perhaps if science is your thing or wondering what to do when you go off to college, I would say absolutely um, you know, consider getting involved really consider going to study a relevant discipline at university, consider studying even one of the hard subjects, you know, something, something in geology or biology, um, you know, evolutionary genetics or radiometric dating or paleontology. What, you know, why not consider studying one of those disciplines, stay in touch with other people who've been there before and understand what it's like, because particularly if you're studying in a secular university, it is not an easy environment for a Christian to be in. And you will need the support of other people and the prayers of others. So do make sure that you get alongside other creationists who can help to mentor you and help you through that process. And we're always happy to advise and to talk to people who want to do that. But I would definitely encourage young people to see this as a field where they can serve God and become involved because there's a lot to do and we need new scholars and you need people who are willing to take the risks for the sake yeah. of the kingdom and so yeah so j just i want to just encourage people to be involved and if that's not your thing if you're not a scientist and that's not really your thing then you know why not support people who have chosen to to take that path you can help them with your prayers and your encouragement or by supporting organizations like 
Biblical Creation Trust and others that are helping to support these students. Yeah, yeah. That's fantastic advice. You heard it straight from the man. That's awesome. Definitely get involved. There's work you can do. Me, I'm not a scientist. I'm like Paul said, for me, I'm a popularizer more than anything else. I just want to help get the message out there. Why not do that? Do do whatever you can for the kingdom if you're interested in these subjects at all. Paul, I'm going to ask if you'll hang out with me for just a second. We could talk about some things afterward here, but otherwise I'm going to go ahead and end the broadcast here. And thank you so much, everyone, for listening and watching wherever you're at. And we love you and appreciate you coming by each week with us. So we'll catch you in the next one.